The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Before we begin, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we are indeed called to be living sacrifices, and there are things that are in this life beyond our control, even things like technology and the internet, and oftentimes we feel, uh, Father, we're reminded in real humbling ways of, of the way that you hold all things together, Father, and that we really have very little control. And so this morning I pray that we would have our thoughts and hearts directed on you, Father, that we would submit to the authority of Scripture, to the power of your word, Father, that our lives would be a living sacrifice and that we indeed would embrace the gift of grace that you've bestowed on us, that we would live as lights in a dark world, in a confusing world that's always changing. Help us, Lord, to live in light of that. Amen. So our passage this morning comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through till verse 12. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your, God, your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As our text this morning, we'll find ourselves primarily in verses 9 and 10. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Father, let it shape us. You've given us our identity and Father, you call us to action in light of that. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning we would be doers of your word and not just hearers only. Certain things uh, have value, not because of what they are, but because of whose they are, because of who they belong to. Certain things have value because of whose they are. An example of this is in 1958, a few years before I was on this earth, uh, Elvis Presley sang, a, he did a performance in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
And the next morning, he was getting ready to travel into the next city, and he was drinking from a paper cup on a, on a city corner, and a fan came up to him and recognized him and asked if she could keep the cup that he drank out of. And so he agreed, and the cup was collapsed by that point, and he gave it to her and wrote her a little note and passed it on. And for, for years and years and years, this woman kept on holding on to this cup because it was precious and it was valuable. And in 2018, in the month of January, this Dixie cup that belonged to the king of rock and roll sold on an online auction for over 1700 U.S. dollars. A paper Dixie cup. A 60-year-old piece of garbage <laughs> that had absolutely no intrinsic value. You couldn't, you couldn't sell that amount of paper for any amount of money. But it was, even though it was of zero intrinsic value, its worth was unfathomable. It was unimaginable that a paper cup could sell for $1,700 because it belonged to a king, particularly the king of rock and roll. And so let me ask you this. How much more, if a paper cup is of great value because of whose it is, how much more do you think you and I who are fearfully and wonderfully made to be image bearers of the king of the universe how much worth are, are we? You see, since Abraham, as this, we're getting going in the series of Abraham, we're going to see that God's identified a particular people group. He's placed his hand, starting with Abraham, and he's called his people to be set apart. And he promises that they'll become a great nation, and he promises that he'll bless the whole world through them. And so from Abraham through till Moses, and through the Exodus, through the patriarchs, and the minor prophets, and the major prophets, and the Psalms, and in through the New Testament, we see that we are the people of God, and the command is to obey. You're God's people, obey. Turn from your sins and repent. And all the way through, through prophets and through the historical narratives, we see that there's blessings promised to us, to those who obey. And there's also consequences for disobedience. But the command for us is to serve the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And particularly, our purpose really is to reflect God's character to the world to proclaim his goodness and that we as God's people would stand out that we would be marked by our conduct by our life that we would be different that we wouldn't blend in with the other cultures around us or their pervasive ideas or trends we aren't called to fall into those same patterns and so let me ask you this what is your hope in life think for a moment in your own life all the things you have going for you what's your hope and not only in life, but in death. Or to put it another way, what certainty will you stake your life and your death on in this life? We read this week, this morning, from the New City Catechism, we read from question 37, but question one, all the way back to the beginning, if you recall back in January, the question we asked is this, what is your only hope in life and in death? And the answer from the New City Catechism is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says that we are God's masterpiece. He didn't make mistakes. He, he, he made masterpieces, you and I. He set us apart. So the only thing that's boastworthy, if you're at a party, you know, people say, oh, tell me about yourself, and, and what do you do, and what do you do, and who are you? The only thing that you really have to boast about in life and in death is that you're God's. Plain and simple, the only boastworthy thing about you and me 
is that we've been made by the king. And because of that, we have great value. So we're going to look at this this morning. The Apostle Peter describes our identity in our text this morning in these words, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So not only are you God's, but you are, you are chosen by God. God's people, since Abraham, have been chosen. Not only to be God's, but to be used by God. We have, in other words, a job to do. We have a purpose to fulfill in this life. And that purpose is given to us in verse 9 of our passage this morning. Because we're a chosen royal priesthood, wholly set apart. Our calling is to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. And this calling transcends time, it transcends culture, it transcends what's popular, it transcends what's important to us, how we feel about it, what we think, what we're comfortable with. It transcends all of that. And our calling is to adorn God's excellencies, to herald the goodness of God's love, Tim Keller, who's a uh, well-known, well-respected pastor, preacher, author, teacher, all those things, theologian, someone who is near to my heart, he says this on the subject of belonging to God. The basic principle then is this, that we are not to live to please ourselves. We're not to live as if we belong to ourselves. And that means several things. It means, first of all, we are not to determine for ourselves what is right or what is wrong. We give up the right to determine that and we rely wholly on on God's word. It also means that we are to have no part of our lives that is immune from self-giving. We're supposed to give ourselves wholly to him, body and soul. In other words, God requires everything from you and everything from me. The problem though, as the Apostle Peter points out, is that there's a war between our flesh and our spirit. There's a war going on between the desires of what me and what I want to do and my selfish, sinful nature and what the scripture calls me to do. There's a war. And we actually become our own worst enemies in trying to carry out our God-given task in that we have sin in our lives. We're drawn away from what God asks us to do. It keeps us from honoring God wholeheartedly. And so we need his help to do the very thing he's called us to do. Tim Keller continues, he says, how can you come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly for you without you giving yourself utterly for him? Jesus gave himself wholly for us, so now we must give ourselves wholly to him. You see, it's it's right for God to give everything for us and then to require that we give everything to him. We have no other choice. We have no other recourse. We have hope in nothing else apart from in him. And so in turn, we can surrender all of our lives to the king. Pastor Barry last week reminded us that we find ourselves these days in a season of adjustment not only with the weather in a literal sense, but the seasons of life are changing. The way the world works is changing. And so we find ourselves not only as people, but as workers in your workplace or in your family, you find yourself adopting new habits. You find yourself adjusting to this new context that we find ourselves in. So let me ask you this. How should we live in this world that's changing around us? Sometimes rapidly. We wait day by day to see Where our life, where our world is going to go from here amongst all the noise and all the voices speaking to you and speaking at you. 
Which voices are the strongest? Who are you going to listen to as you establish patterns and routines? Sometimes I find myself saying, Lord, speak. Tell me what to do. <laughs> Doesn't seem obvious. Lord, speak to me. And he has. Through his word. Paul to Timothy says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. You need wisdom. You need to know how to think, how to act, how to choose. The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. Scripture is God-breathed. All of scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God, the man of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work. In other words, the scriptures are sufficient. They're enough. They're trustworthy for all matters of life. Scriptures give you a, a biblical worldview. It's almost as though you, you put on glasses. We all put on glasses when we wake up every morning and we interpret the world through one way. And so if your, your worldview says that there is a God, then you're going to live accordingly to that. You're going to act in accordance with that. But by the same token, if your worldview tells you that there is no God and life is meaningless, well, that too will determine the course of your life and the choices you make. But the psalmist in, in 119 of, of the psalm says that the, 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 the word of the Lord is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so scripture indeed shows us how in every circumstance to live, how to think, how to shape your convictions, which will in turn guide your habits. And this is why the apostle Peter tells us to long for God's word. And he calls it spiritual milk. We have young babies at home and so that image of babies longing for the, the, this, the milk of their mother is very vivid. It's their appetite. That's their sole desire as they grow up. And so the Apostle Peter says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So now what? <laughs> now what do we do? In fact, that's the title for this morning's message is now what? We know whose we are. We know that we're God's, and we know that his word is trustworthy, so now what do we do? Because if, unless you live in a cave or under a rock, surely this life has presented trials your way. This year, last year, 10 years ago, as a child, this world isn't, isn't right. It's not the way it, it should be. And so you find yourself asking, what now? How do I be faithful to God? My, my desire is to honor God and to be faithful to God, but I, I don't know how to do that. Because the scripture doesn't tell me to go to this school or that school or marry this person or buy this insurance policy or buy this house or move to that town or take this job. The scriptures don't necessarily speak to each individual decision that we need to, we need to make. So how are you going to make these choices? How are you going to live? Are you going to live out of conviction or are you going to live and make choices and habits out of fear? In this letter, I think the Apostle Peter prompts us to three responses, and that's what we'll spend the rest of our time looking at, three responses that the scriptures give. The first one is to look inward. The second is to look outward, and the third is to look upward. Inward, outward, and upward. We'll start with the first one, look inwardly. Have you ever done a, a good thing for someone else or done a good thing 
but for the wrong reason? I know I have. Maybe it's for selfishness, for selfish reasons, or maybe it's for recognition or your reputation. But it's possible to do a good thing, but for a wrong reason. The reality of, of us as humans is that we, no one knows ourselves better than us. And that's kind of a scary thing. No one knows the motives, the condition of my heart better than me. And so I can actually deceive people with my good deeds. Sin is surprisingly deceptive. Even, even the most upright, godly Christian behavior can be deceptive. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 15 rebukes the Pharisees. He reprimands them, and here's what he says. He says that you honor me with your lips while your hearts are far from me. And so our instruction is to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You see, the scriptures, one of the things they do is they cause us to look inwardly to check our heart, to check our motives. They call into question things like our pride, our integrity. It calls out any deceit or envy or slander that's within us, ulterior motives. You see, holiness, living a holy life, as we're commanded to do in Scripture, starts with the heart. Lest we be like the Pharisees who on the outside, we honor God with our lips and with our deeds, but our hearts are far from him. Holiness starts with the heart and in a, in a whole submission to the one to whom you and I belong. Your heart has to want to honor God. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So let me ask you this. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Do you know that God is good? And do you believe that God is good? The scriptures call us to look inwardly at the self. They also call us to look outwardly at others. Verse 6 of our text this morning, for it stands in scripture, and then Peter goes on to quote the psalmist and the prophet Isaiah, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see, there's two groups of people here that the Apostle Peter presents to us. There's believers, there's unbelievers. There's those who obey, there's those who disobey. There's those who build their life upon the rock, upon the cornerstone, and there's those who stumble over the same rock, the same cornerstone. There's two kinds of people, and, and, and I ask the question, how could anybody ever come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the goodness of the gospel, the holiness of God, and reject him? How, how, could, how could one do that? If you've tasted that the Lord is good, how could you not live in light of that? Well, let me remind you of people like the Pharaoh from the book of Exodus. Or the rich young ruler who, when asked Jesus what's required of him, and Jesus tells him to sell everything, give to the poor and follow him, he can't do it. Or how about the religious leaders, the same Pharisees whom Jesus rebukes in Matthew 15? Or Judas Iscariot, who walked with Jesus for years, who was one of his closest companions, yet for a bag of coins, was willing to betray him. You see, human disobedience and hardness of heart is a part of God's sovereign plan. It's within the plan of God to bring about his sovereign will 
And that's the reality, is that the gospel is an offensive message because it, cal- it calls down our pride. And the gospel will most certainly offend people. And so verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. My mom always told me, don't worry about what other people think about you. And I think to some extent she's right. I don't need to entertain every thought and every lie of people who try to tease me and drag me down. But what I think is true for Christians and what Peter encourages us to do here, calls us to do, is that you should care what people think about you. You really should care. So while on one hand, no, on the schoolyard, don't let the bullies tease you, you should care what people say about you. You see, a life of uncompromising integrity to the gospel is surely going to upset evildoers, scoffers, naysayers, critics, because the gospel to them is a stumbling block. It's in their way. They haven't built their life upon the cornerstone, but rather it's offensive to them. So they will come and they will speak against you. And my encouragement is for you not to plug your ears and just ignore them like the schoolyard bullies, but to hear the critic, hear the skepticism, hear the naysayers, test it, see if there's weight behind it, see if there's weight to their judgments, and see if they're right. Are they right in what they say about you? Because our identity, again, is that we are a royal priesthood. We're sons of and daughters of the Most High God. And there's a saying that goes, royal children have royal manners. So the way you live your life matters. What people see in you matters because it's a reflection of the gospel. Our job is to adorn the gospel with our conduct and with our lives. Not so as to avoid people criticizing you because we know that they'll come but that in our conduct, they will see that we're children of God, that we'll put away conduct, behavior, habits, characteristics that aren't becoming of of royalty, of a royal child, so that through you, they might taste and see the same God, the same gospel, that the Lord is good. And that they too would, would cease to trip over the gospel, that it would cease to become a stumbling block, and that they too would place their hope on the cornerstone of Christ. I have a a bad habit, and that's to be a people pleaser, to be kind of a yes man. And if you're like me, you've probably gotten yourself into trouble on more than one occasion trying to please people. Because it usually doesn't work out. (laughs) If you're concerned about what will please your wife or your husband or your boss or your kids, someone's going to lose, and you lose every time. Because in order to fulfill one set of expectations... You'll have to give up. It'll come at the expense of that of another. And so you will lose every time trying to be a people pleaser. You might let somebody down, disappoint them. Worse yet, you might find yourself in a compromising situation. Lest your critics, your scoffers, be right in their claims against you. So rather than trying to please people, seek to honor God that their judgments against you when the scoffers come They won't stand up. They can't criticize you, in other words. You haven't tried to please them. You've tried to please the king, the God, who's set the world into motion, who's given you and I an identity and called us to live in light of that. So the gospel, the scriptures, call us to look inward, 
to look outward, and finally to look upward. You see, Christ warned his disciples right from the beginning that there will be persecution. Suffering will come, it will be many, that affliction will come, and he says they'll hate you because they've hated me. And blessed are those who hate you, who scoff and who revile against you on my account. So it's not a matter of if we're persecuted, or, but, but rather when and how. And there's men and women, there's countless men and women, in fact, who have staked their lives and their death on the claim that they're children of God, with great boldness, have been willing to lay their lives down. How could someone do that? Would you be willing to die for your, your faith? If you had the opportunity to get out of it, would you? I think the perspective we need to hold is that there's something greater yet on the other side. We're living in, a, in this world as exiles. An exile is somebody who's living as a foreigner or an alien in a place that's not theirs, in a place that's not home to them. And so men and women who are willing to lay their lives down, we call them martyrs, who are willing to endure persecution at the, for the sake of the gospel, are aware that they're living as exiles, and they know that there's something greater yet to come. Namely, an eternal inheritance, as the Apostle Peter, one chapter earlier, describes this way. It's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that's waiting for you in heaven. So until then, how do we live in this world? While we find hope in the promise that we're his, and he is ours, which gives us hope beyond our circumstances, because it's given to us in scripture, which is sufficient for life. It says in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors. You see, we haven't won the battle. Christ has won the battle for us. And it gives us hope, not only beyond this life, but beyond the grave. I think Francis Crosby, or Fanny Crosby, in 1873 said it very appropriately blessed assurance jesus is mine oh what a foretaste of glory divine heir of salvation purchase of god born of his spirit washed in his blood you see we've received a taste of this eternal inheritance already we live in a world that is already here in some sense that the kingdom of god has already come there's tastes of it, there's glimpses of it, but it's not yet here. And one day soon, soon and very soon, it will come. We will receive our full inheritance. And so it's with that hope that we can endure the trials that we face and look upwardly. Would you pray with me? Father, your word shapes how we think, shapes how we act, and how we interact with people who are like us, who are not like us, who love us, who hate us, who speak evil against us. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to test our conduct and our decisions and our choices and our convictions up against the scriptures to see whether or not there's any weight behind the words that come our way, the judgments and the critics. Father, not that we would please man, but that we would please you in all areas of life. And so while we're left to exercise discernment and wisdom in our day-to-day -day life, Father, I pray that we would submit ourselves wholly to you, our mind, soul, 
body to you, Father, that we would be living sacrifices, living stones, as Peter describes. Lord, we await the day where we receive our eternal inheritance that can't be taken away, a pure inheritance that lasts forever and is certainly worth everything. We love you, Lord. Amen.